0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the second lecture in the uh, cycle, which is called Russian Opera and the State. And it's about the most famous Russian opera internationally, which is Mussorgsky's Boris Godunov, or shall I say Boris Godunov in the Russian way. Uh, So uh, why is it so famous? Um, I think uh, the main reason for that was that it was staged in 1908 by the great Russian impresario Sergei Diaghilev, and usually things that he did uh, had this very nice afterlife in the world after he staged them. Uh, so there were uh, two main attractions to this. One was the sets, an amazing sets by Alexander Golavin. When uh, where they, they were unpacking them at the Paris Opera. They found them kind of outrageously colorful. Yeah, there was nothing like that at the time in, in Paris. Uh, And uh, the other attraction was the great Russian bass Fyodor Shalapin. Now, you can see him uh, here, the portrait by Golavin, uh, who was an amazing singer and also an amazing actor. And uh, luckily, we can hear him. So this is the scene uh, where he sees the ghost of the murdered little boy, Tsarevich, um, that he's supposed to have ordered to murder. So uh, let us hear a little bit of that. clock. Тяжко станет, что молотом стучит уша упреком и проклятием. И душит что-то, душит, и голова кружится, и мальчики, да, мальчики кровавые в глаз. So apparently, when Chalepin was singing this, you know, this particular scene, and when he was at Von there, you know, everyone would turn there and try to look for the ghost, yeah, although there wasn't actually a ghost. So he was an amazing actor, as well as as you can hear even from this very old recording from the 20s, yeah, fantastic singer. As for the production that Diaghilev actually staged, um, it was a very mangled version of Boris Godunov. He removed some scenes that he thought were too wordy for the French public because the opera was performed in Russian uh, and there were no subtitles. Yeah, so they had no idea what was going on. So he just removed these scenes and then, you know, he um, changed the order of the other scenes. It was a completely his version of Boris Godunov, but nevertheless, that started the opera on the international stage. And uh, although this was 1908, and it was sort of more than 30 years after Mussorgsky's death, and more than 40 uh, years after, uh, almost 40 years after uh, uh, the opera was written, uh, it still felt very modern. And uh, a lot of composers, including um, you know Debussy, were learning from it. It it still felt like a model to imitate. Uh, and uh, it had this amazing dramatic power. And for those who could speak Russian, it also had this amazing text, which was written by Pushkin. Because it has a, a, a literary source, what is a tragedy uh, written in blank verse uh, by Pushkin, which was uh, published in 1831, but only existed as a play, it wasn't staged because until 1868, it was prohibited by censorship. So, and then Mussorgsky takes it up in in 1869. Yeah, as soon as it's sort of allowed to be performed, he he creates an opera on it, so that might not be a coincidence. Now, uh, Pushkin is a kind of Russian Shakespeare, yeah, so he creates these amazing lines, and uh, Mussorgsky tried to follow his um, uh, play line by line. Quite a lot of the scenes um, are really verbatim um, taken from Pushkin. But uh, of course the play is quite long and it's um, it's very difficult uh, to follow if you were actually ever to see it at the drama theater because it jumps from place to place, has a lot of characters, very difficult to follow. Uh, So he, he cut out a lot of scenes and obviously focused uh, this um, version, 1869 version, on the figure of Boris. But beyond Pushkin, we have another figure, and that's a historian, Nikolai Karamzin, the author of a uh, 12 volume history of the Russian state. And uh, they appeared at the, uh, at the time when Russia was uh, reimagining itself, or actually imagining itself maybe for the first time as a nation. And one—that's uh, when, when the Russian national anthem, for example, was written. Yeah. So in the 20s and 30s, and uh, this was the first history. And of course, uh, he died before sort of bringing it uh, to, to the present. But nevertheless, um, the Boris Godunov episode was very important in it. And this was a project funded by the Russian court. So you can see that Karamzin is actually a monarchist. Yeah, and he sees the history as being moved along, yeah, driven by the Tsars. Yeah, so that's his idea. Uh, Pushkin, in fact, was a, was a liberal, so he, he made this quip, a little epigram about um, the history. Yeah, his history's simplicity and grace dispassionately proved beyond all doubt the nation's need of autocratic ways and for our backs the sweet sting of the lash. Yeah, so nevertheless, he admired it, yeah? so his play was based on Karamzin in, in um, uh, to a great extent. But Pushkin's play is quite cynical rendition of Russian history, and this is uh, almost at the very beginning. It's almost the second thing that you have on, on the page. Uh, and these are the words by Shuisky, who is a boyar, so a high-ranking nobleman, who talks about the situation where the people are supposed to be brought to ask Boris to uh, take up the throne? And he says, How will it end? That is not hard to tell. A little more, the multitude will groan and wail. Boris, pucker while, his forehead like a toper eyeing a glass of wine, and in the end, will humbly, of his graciousness, consent to take the crown and then, and then will rule us just as before. Yeah, so he's completely saying, he is himself this puppet master, the manipulator, who is always behind the political theater, and this is why this play and the opera is still yeah, incredibly topical today. Yeah. We call them now spin doctors or political technologists, so Shuisky is one of them. Uh, but, of course, uh, Mussorgsky could not do quite the same in the opera. Yeah, if you're writing a grand opera, it cannot have this, this cynical character. Yeah? when you have the music, something else comes in, and uh, uh, so his vision of Boris Ganonov is rather in between uh, Karamzin's and. Pushkins. Yeah, so he kind of removes all the barbs from Pushkin, doesn't set them to music. But of course, music can give us something that the play can't. And that is, becomes very obvious at the very beginning, which I'm going to play the orchestral introduction, which might be a little bit quiet. Now, if you know something about Russian 19th century music, you would recognize that this this theme tells you immediately you are in Russia. Yeah, and there is a very good word uh, to represent the feeling that this uh, theme elicits, taska. yeah, this melancholy, this longing, uh, this Russian expanse, all of this is in this music. Yeah, I can give you an illustration of that. Yeah, have it with the music now, you'll see what I mean. Uh, and uh, it's, um, this type of song that Mussorgsky uses here has been described by various Russian writers in very poetic ways. So I'm going to read you a quote from Nikolai Gogol from his uh, great work of prose, which is called The Dead Souls. But what is that inexplicable force that draws me to thee? Why does that plaintive song which rises all over the length and breadth of thee from sea to sea constantly resound in my ear? What is there in it in that song? What is there in it that calls and sobs and grips the heart? What are those strains that poignantly caress and torment me, that streams straight into my soul that entwine themselves around my heart? Russia. What does that want of me? <laughs> what does that want of me? Yes, yeah, so a lot of questions that he's asking of Russia, of his country. And uh, identifying Russia with that Song, yeah, that song with a very long line, very drawn out. Yeah, it's called Pratyajne. So you kind of stretched out verse with a lot of, sort of melismatic motion of the melody and then a lot of, lot of verses, um, you know, maybe up to 50 or 60. You never find out what happens in the end, what the song is about, because you usually get only two or three. Yeah, so this is the great Pratyajne song, which is as, as great and as drawn out as the Russian expanses. And uh, signifies this Russian melancholy. So uh, Russian composers and writers sort of picked one genre of Russian folk song. It's not like all Russian music is sad, yeah. But they precisely landed on that genre and took it as a symbol of Russianness. And this is how Mussorgsky starts his opera. Yeah. So I can give you a, a folk um, prototype for this. da <sad> dee <singing> 4 one, da dee ra, ra, ra. Now I'll sing you the Mussorgsky tune. da da ra ra, 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 ra ti ra ta Yeah, four-one. You can see it's not exactly the same song, yeah, but it has this very typical melodic motion from four to one. And the Russians were very proud of the fact that it was four to one, not five to one, because in the West they do five to one, and in Russia we do four to one. Yeah, so we're different. And also these notes that are in green. Ta-ra-ra-ra-ra. And you think, oh, what key am I in? Yeah, it's not a normal minor. It sort of shifts. So exactly the same. Yeah, we have in the folk prototype. So Mussorgsky obviously wanted to be quite close to this Prytajne folk song for the beginning, and it creates this uh, very pessimistic and very evocative image of Russia from the very beginning. Yeah, and defines the opera. Uh, now. Uh, indeed um, as um, uh, as i said the opera is quite grim uh, and it's because of of the history and history of the time of troubles in russia is really incredible you know it's it's uh, it's more unbelievable than any operatic plot um so, uh, why this time of troubles happens? Because basically, Ivan the Terrible, uh, the last Rurik uh, Tsar of the Rurik Dynasty, destroyed uh, his heir, as you can see in this wonderful painting. Um, so, by striking him with this this big stick, um, and he also, um, you know, I think. Um, was, was to blame. He beat up the wife of Tsarevich Ivan, and uh, so she miscarried. And so, so basically, he was to blame uh, yeah, for the fact that he was left with no heirs. And there's a 15-year period until the first Romanov tsar is installed, and that's what we, uh, what we heard in the previous lecture. Yeah? So we're kind of going back in time from the Romanovs in 15 years earlier. Uh, and uh, Boris Godunov became the regent to the the only remaining heir who wasn't couldn't quite rule because he had sort of some kind of mental uh, problems. Uh, so he uh, he uh, becomes regent before he becomes tsar. Yeah, after the death of Fyodor, but he is also blamed uh, for destroying another potential heir, Tsarevich Dmitry, yeah, who was a. Um, a young boy, and you can see a picture of him, so his throat being cut on the orders of Boris, supposedly. Uh, and uh, actually, strictly speaking, Dmitry could not uh, have inherited the throne legally, yeah, because he was from the seventh marriage of Ivan the Terrible, and the church only recognized four. Yeah, but nevertheless, so, you know, if, if this is true, yeah, Boris probably said, well, it's better be to be safe than sorry. So um, maybe that's what's happened. And uh, after that, uh, you have this Boris Godunov as an electric Tsar, Yeah, but there is a rumour uh, around the crowds that Dimitri might have survived. So in the end, you had um, as possibly as many as four pretenders to the throne who all called themselves Dimitri, and one of them ruled for, about, ruled for about a year, and that's the one we have in the opera. So uh, here's the synopsis. Uh, So first, you have sort of uh, five years before the main action starts in 1598, the prologue, um, so that Boris is asked by the people to take the throne. Uh, Then he is crowned, but he has dark premonitions because his conscience um, doesn't let him enjoy the occasion. Um, Then uh, we were in a monastery where the monk Pimin is writing the story of the murder, And the younger monk called Grigory hears it and decides that he is the same age as Dmitry was supposed to be, and maybe he'll become the pretender. Uh, Then in the next scene, we see him crossing the border into Poland, Lithuania, where he will get the the funding for his project. And uh, um, then you see Boris at at home with his family, and Shuiski delivers the news of the pretender. Boris is terrified. That's... um, and what happens, and then uh, Boris is challenged by the Holy Fool, and in the final scene, he dies. So it's a gradual unraveling of Boris uh, because of this stain on his conscience, and it really is a play that ends uh, sorry, an opera, yeah, which ends with the death of Boris. In Pushkin, it doesn't end there, it continues. It actually ends with the with the murder of Boris's children, yeah so it 's a more epic thing, yeah, and this is a more tragedy centered on on Boris now you might tell me that 's not how you remember the opera, and that 's indeed uh, true because this is the eighteen sixty nine the first version, yeah, and then he added some more scenes and i 'll tell you about that a little bit later so of course, the scene that uh, Anyone would remember you know, having seen Boris Godunov uh, once is the scene of Boris's death. And actually in Pushkin, uh, Boris's death is off stage, yeah, so he doesn't make it into this melodramatic event. But, but this is what, uh, what Mussorgsky does. Uh, yeah. So one of the most spectacular operatic deaths. Uh, but that, that, what's interesting about this, you could hear both Shalapin and Christoph and basically every Boris off. they almost speak. Yeah, they don't actually sing at that point. Well, Mussorgsky actually gives them the notes, so they're basically supposed to sing those notes. And it's a pity but that they don't, because the idea of Mussorgsky was to write music that was dependent on the intonation and rhythms of speech. That was actually his great innovation. And uh, uh, he actually uh, approached this quite scientifically. Um, In the previous project, which was unfinished, it was an opera um, based on Gogol's comedy, The Marriage, he was trying to literally to set every single line of the text and it was very funny because it's a comedy because you know you could do various uh, sort of strange um, intonations yeah that we use in speech slightly exaggerated the only thing that happens is that then the music becomes very strange especially for the 19th century it has very strange intervals because we don't speak in, in melodies. yeah. So if you want to notate the speech, the music has to conform to it. And then you have all, all, also very strange harmonies. So uh, Musowski's friends were very amused by this project. But at the same time, they, they suggested to him that it's not quite music. Yeah. So he, he did not uh, continue with that, because it, it was a hugely long thing you know, when you said something like that line by line. Uh, singing actually takes much longer than speaking. Yeah, so you couldn't continue with that. But then Boris Ganov, he sort of goes back a little bit on that. It's not as radical, but nevertheless, there's a lot of these lines. that sound like speech. And uh, so people who are sober will sound different from people who are drunk. Women will sound different from men. Yeah, Boris, when he's excited, will sound very different from Shuisky, who is very smooth, you know, and never raises his voice. So uh, uh, it's a very new idea, very radically uh, presented by Mussorgsky. And the interesting thing that all of them, of course, are speaking Russian. And Russian has a particular pattern of stresses which is not matched by any other language. So, for example, you have these words uh, which will have several unaccented syllables um, at, at the end. Yeah, well, I don't know, what shall shall I say? You know, there are these amazing words. It's not in the opera deck, but like, You know, there was a lot of syllables after the first first stress. So, and the melody, obviously, uh, depends on that. So when you want to translate an opera, when it was translated into Italian, for example, to be performed at the Met, they had to rewrite the music yeah because it didn't fit anymore with the Italian words. so you can see the, that the idea of presenting this kind of national style um, in the opera uh, goes sort of another makes another step forward. Um, So, you know, this is what I'm going to do, you know, today in this lecture. I was trying to do two things at once, you know, to show how this pessimistic and very radical message about uh, power and the people is projected in the opera, and also at the same time how Mussorgsky uh, creates the national musical style. And uh, if you remember the previous lecture, which was about Glinka's opera, Life for the Tsar, uh, as for the pessimistic message, yeah, it's almost the opposite of that celebration of Russian monarchy that we had in Glinka. But in terms of the national style, it's actually a continuation of what Glinka started to do. So uh, speech yeah, becomes a very important part of this creation of Russian style. And you can see, I'll give you some other examples. Um, this is an example of the reading of the edict that the police... Come with, you know. They're trying to catch uh, the pretender, whom you see is, is, has red hair, um, and uh, uh, n- nobody there can seems to be able to read. And so he says, "Well, I'll read the edict," but he changes the words. So let's let's hear what it sounds like. <laughs> and hang him. Я yeah, it's fun. повесить. it's Somebody who can't really read properly, trying to read it out. So this becomes a musical joke as well. Uh, this is the kind of you know, musical humour that he was able to draw from these comedy scenes. And that was precisely the scene that Diaghilev cut, yeah, because he couldn't see how the French would possibly be able to cope with this. Yeah, So one of the best things he actually cut out. But uh, it's not just comedy that he, uh, Mussorgsky tries to present through this imitation of speech, um, uh, even though his friends thought it was you know, primarily comedic. So you have this first scene yeah, where the people come to beg the Tsar to take the throne, and they don't know why uh, they are there. You know, the policeman tells them to shout, and they shout. <laughs> And uh, so Mussorgsky does something very interesting with the choir. And the choir usually uh, comes out as, as this mass, monolithic mass of people. And here he gives them different voices. <music> О чем я знаю, царя на Руси хотим познавить. Ой, лихонько, совсем окрипа, голупа за дедушка, не преповслаль водицы. Иж моя я такая. Орала пущите позала. Ну, вы бабы не купорец, а ты что за заугальщик? And so you get the idea. This, again, this is done for the first time. The, the choir uh, suddenly is divided into these voices and, and they speak between each other. And it has a great symbolic um, significance as well because now the people become this very important character and the rumours start among them when they talk to each other, start spreading and eventually undermine the, uh, Boris's throne. Yeah, so, um, and this happens gradually. So uh, Mussorgsky, yeah, through his music, makes uh, the people a very important and changing character throughout the opera. The the people also get a spokesman in that very famous scene at St. Basil's Cathedral when um, Boris is confronted by the Holy Fool. And by that stage, uh, there's there have already been a few years of drought, and his um, rule, which became quite began quite happily, yeah, uh, sort of starts. The people start suffering, and they're begging here for bread with much more intensity. So this spokesman is the Holy Fool. dramatic power here, uh, and uh, uh, the wonderful performance by Ivan Kozlovsky, a great Soviet tenor, who really made this role his own uh, and completely is of, uh, increased its significance well beyond its actually uh, what it was. So uh, the Holy Fool is, a, is this very traditional figure in various Russian writings who w- wears chains yeah, and is completely um, sort of starves himself and is probably a bit mad. yeah. But because of that, he somehow earns the right to speak truth to power. Yeah, so here you have this encounter of power and the people via the Holy Fool, and it's, it's an amazing scene, possibly one of the best. Uh, and... What happens next? Mussorgsky actually cuts it out when he makes a revision uh, and creates the second version of Boris Godunov. So the story goes like this, that when he presented his first version to the, dire- direction, to the directory of the Imperial Theatres, they rejected it uh, for the simple reason that there was no love line and no prima donna role. Yeah, So you can imagine how Mussorgsky was so you know, obsessed with history and with Pushkin and with Boris. He uh, omitted yeah, to include any kind of uh, female prima donna lo- uh, role or uh, the love line. So he had to rewrite it, and he added the whole Polish act. It's not really very much of uh, romantic love because Marina Mnicek, the Polish princess, marries him uh, for the throne. Uh, yeah, but nevertheless, you know, it did the trick. But while he started revising that, in that, um, you know, he sort of over overshot and written another scene, another final scene, a new thing. So he's taken the story further beyond Boris's death. It became more epic, a bit like in Pushkin. But although the scene does, is not taken from Pushkin, it's actually taken, um, inspired by the historian Kostomarov, who was already of the next generation. After Karamzin and more kind of populist, so his um, idea of history was that history was dri- uh, driven by the masses of people rather than by the tsar. Yeah, so Mussorgsky is now partakes of that idea as well through writing this new scene. So this is what is called the Kromy scene. Uh, it's a scene in the Kromy forest where you have the people rioting and they have them mocking the boyars and torturing them. Yeah, It's a violent mass of people, it's a, it's a kind of revolution. <laughs> Yeah, uh from another, from the film version now, uh, we encounter the same runaway monks, these Varlam and Misael that we saw in the end scene uh, together with the pretender, and now they are inciting the masses. <laughs> So the very interesting uh, juxtaposition of two musics, yeah, so one is Russian music when they're saying, well, here is your new Tsar, Dmitry Ivanovich, and then at that point you hear the prayer, which is a Catholic prayer, uh, because Dmitry is supported by the Poles, and that is just, you know, they just uh, sort of go against each other like that, the two musics of the two countries. yeah, And then the people turn against uh, the Poles, yeah? and uh, so are violent toward, towards these these priests that come in. Yeah, so it's, it's a complete chaos. And the result of that is, again, the cry of the Holy Fool. So this is why Mussorgsky had to sacrifice that scene that we've just, you know, at sun Basil's, where the Holy Fool uh, was performing his duty of speaking to power, because now the Holy Fool uh, because symbolic of the whole people in a different way. He cries for the future, Yeah, that dark times are coming. So the fact that the, the, the pretender is going to take the throne and the people are hoping he's going to be the new good Tsar, yeah, the fool can see through that. He prophesies the dark future. Um, This is how it ends. Yeah, There is no even final chord, there is nothing. It really ends on this sigh or sob, Yeah, which is sounds in the bassoon sound that you had at the very start with the pratyazhne. This is how Mussorgsky ties the beginning and the end. And it's, of course, a hugely pessimistic message, yeah? which Russians are prepared to identify with still. Yeah. So um, about Russian history. Uh, and. Uh, mm, As for the the nationalism of the music, we already talked about the Russian speech and uh, about the Russian folk song, and there is a third ingredient to the Russian national style that Mussorgsky introduces here, and that's Russian Orthodox music. Uh, and sometimes you just hear the progressions that are sung by the Russian Orthodox Church, and uh, unless you know this uh, this kind of idiom very well, you will not recognize them as particularly Russian, because they're very Westernized. Yeah, but every single time that you uh, you can have a prayer or a mention of the patriarch or even the mention of the legitimacy of the tsar, uh, who is you know put there by God. Uh, you have these these Russian Orthodox harmonic progressions. Uh, So, for example, here... Yeah, so it's as if you are in the Russian Orthodox Church, and that's what the chorus would, would be singing. Uh, and there is another very important ingredient to that, and that is the bells, yeah, the Russian Orthodox bells. This is really also one of the most important things that uh, uh, Mussorgsky introduces into the Russian nationalist palette. Uh, and uh, uh, what is interesting in what, how he does it, yeah, you might remember that in, in, in Life of the Tsar there were bells as well, but they uh, in fact were real bells, yeah, church bells which are put in the orchestra pit, so no big deal. What Mussorgsky decides to do, he decides to create the bells by the means of the orchestra. And Russian Orthodox bells, especially these huge ones, yeah, they don't actually have a defined pitch. Yeah, they have a very complex uh, structure, so that you, it's impossible to tell what the note actually is. Yeah, very complex timbre. So he really worked on this and created this orchestral version of the bells, uh, which uh, um, he uses basically two dissonant chords and he alternates between them. And because they're two dissonant chords which are not resolving, yeah, you, you don't have tonality at that point. It's it's a eternal music, yeah, and it it still sounds very nice, yeah. But it's it's actually a moment of suspending tonality, and a lot of people got very excited by that. Uh, now Rimsky-Korsakov, his friend, uh, helped him to orchestrate that because you also had to f- find the orchestral sound that would sound like a bell without being yeah including any bells. So this is what you have in the coronation scene. what is he doing he then introduces real bells yeah what was it all this for yeah if you already sort of created this amazing innovative progressive device yeah of how to represent the bells by the orchestra and then you suddenly so sort taken of out of this and uh, yeah and um, and have real bells as well and i think it's to, to create this spatial effect because when you have this very deep sound of the orchestral bell it's as if you are standing next to the bell. Yeah, it's, uh, the, the, this great sort of uh, Ivan uh, bell tower in the Kremlin. And, uh, but in, on great events like that, great celebrations like the coronation scene, all the bells of all the churches would have been ringing. Yeah, so you have this, this great spatial effect of bells coming from everywhere. So I think that's, that's why. Uh, but this idea that bells are somehow significant this opera sort of continues because uh, the scene I already showed you, but I'll remind you, um, the scene with the chiming clock. Yeah, the chiming also has this bell and has the same interval of the tritone. Yeah, the devil's interval, as we call it, um, which uh, starts eating at at Boris's mind. Um, uh, sorry, I, uh, I first wanted to show you before I, I get to that scene. Yeah, how uh, other composers started then uh, borrowing the idea from Mussorgsky. So this very famous piano rendition of the bell. Yeah, you also have very low note. So Rachmaninoff, basically the whole of Rachmaninoff's style is full of these Russian bells. They all come from Mussorgsky. Yeah. Uh, now this scene. Yeah, with the chiming clock. Want you to hear the triton. Yeah, so because the triton is very unstable, it also removes tonality. And you have again two harmonies. Yeah, so stability of tonality goes and stability of Boris's mind goes as well. Yeah, so that also influenced composers, that particular sort of tritonal combination, lots of them. Uh, Scriabin, for example. Yeah. Uh, Prokofiev. So, you have these uh, very scary climaxes in both of these sonatas. Yeah, terrifying, and they both have this idea of tritonal juxtaposition of two harmonies, which create this moment of atonality, all uh, owing to Mussorgsky. Now, uh, of course, an opera like this, yeah, which projects this very potent, um, pessimistic message uh, about the relationship between people and power you would think that it would have trouble with censorship. Yeah? Uh, and it did, but not for the reasons you would think. It's, it's a very kind of interesting, censorship in, in, in Russia, especially in the Tsarist period, was, was a strange thing. There were very particular rules. So you were not supposed to have um, members of the Romanov dynasty presented. Yeah? So because Tsar Boris was before that, you could put him on stage. But you can put on stage priests and the patriarch. Yeah? So the scene with the coronation, where the patriarch is supposed to crown him, was supposed to happen without the patriarch. Yeah? So all these, these beautiful robes that you usually have in productions today you know, could not have happened at the time. Yes, and the scene in the monastery where the monk Pimen uh, is, is portrayed also had to be cut. Yeah? So it, it's not what you think that happens with censorship. But basically Boris was always uh, mutilated in some way. The Chroma scene that you've seen, yeah, the scene of the revolution... It actually stayed for the first performance, so they didn't cut it. But uh, there was a rumour that the, the Tsar didn't like uh, this opera. So eventually, in 1882, it was taken off stage. Mussorgsky died by that stage. so And for many years, it wasn't performed. And the person who actually wanted to bring it back to the stage was uh, Mussorgsky's friend, Rimsky-Korsakov, But because he had a very different idea of what music is and how it should sound like, he decided to revise it quite radically. Yeah, so he changed almost 80% of bars um, yeah, in the score, correcting harmonies, reorchestrating, uh, putting voices in better registers, yeah, and more sort of mm, uh, sonorous registers for the singers. So doing all this job, creating the rimsky korskov version, which became incredibly popular, and part of it I've I've played to you already. I sne- you know had to sneak it in, because um, the film, for example, the Soviet film has the rimsky korskov version. So, uh, so you have all these things. And then when people uh, you know, put it in Paris, actually people started saying, why do we have to hear Rimsky-Korsky version? We want to hear Mussorgsky original. Yeah, Debussy was one of the people who was objecting to this of lack of authenticity. Uh, and gradually, the, the Mussorgsky original was brought out as well, and then they remembered that there was the first version, and then they thought, oh, this is this wonderful scene with the St. Basil's Cathedral, well, let's put them together, so they create a conflated version, yeah? the, which has the Holy Fool singing twice, yeah, the same music, but with different words and different situations. So basically, we have this proliferation of versions. And it's impossible to say what is that, that Mussorgsky opera uh, that would be sort of authentic. It, it would be authenticity of different types, you know. Um, you, either you, uh, you either you take it as it was performed at, at one point or as he sort of con- conceived it in a particular version of the score. So there's always a big uh, difference uh, between various productions. Um, now talking about Russianness, uh, you might think that Russianness is—you can sort of perceive it throughout the whole um, uh, the whole opera. But actually, there is one place where you can't, and that's in the Polish act. Yeah, because so it's actually—it's not just a default style that he devises, it, but it's also a local color. Uh, so if you are not in Russia, if you're in Poland, the music is going to be different. <laughs> you find out that Mosowski actually could write a perfectly good Western melody, very beautiful, yeah? He could, he just didn't want to, you know, because he wanted to be different from the West. So. Um, Interestingly, you know, when he creates his second version, he actually also changes the central soliloquy of Boris and makes it more operatic, makes it more like an aria. While in the previous version, it was it was sort of more based on recitative, uh, and you might recognize this melody. It's interesting that he used a melody that he actually had written earlier for a different opera on a French plot. Yeah, so it's, it's it's as if he because he's already rewriting this opera for the grand stage, he becomes it becomes more operatic and less radical, so a little bit more conventional, but it's a beautiful uh, version of the aria, which we all love. So again, you know, producers, when they put together um, um, a kind of new production, they have to think of all these things, of what uh, version they actually prefer. So now, if you're going to see Boris on stage, you might be faced with uh, all kinds of combinations of scenes. Uh, And uh, you might hear the 1869 version as it was done in the Royal Opera House recently, and that uh, responds very well. It's very dark, it's very aesthetic, and responds very well to modern dress. You know, it's a very dark thing. And you might hear Rimsky-Korsakov uh, version when you go to Russia, because it's still performed at the Bolshoi, and that's a more luxurious one. Uh, and that goes very, very well with all the, the sort of the traditional historical costumes, with all the glitter and the gems. And uh, you might also, uh, you know, hear maybe the Shostakovich orchestration of Boris Godunov, which uh, is different from Rimsky-Korskov. It's darker, but it's also more fuller than Mussorgsky's own orchestration. Uh, So um, what what amazes me is that uh, although there is no one Boris, and every time the opera will be different, there is something so powerful that it always works no matter how you produce it. And this is the great mystery of this wonderful opera. Yeah, something, no matter what you do with it, you can take the scenes out, you can cut them, you can reshuffle them as Diaghilev did, and the power of the message and the power of the music still remain. Thank you very much.